Welcome to the Carl Sterling Podcast, delivering conversations with experts and excellence in education. And it's still, still doing very, very well. Absolutely. It, 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 you know, there's nothing, probably nothing more powerful than hope. Because once somebody changes that psychology and they get into, oh, I, I see potential, I see possibility, that can shift everything. You and know, people it's with real change. You know, people saying, "Look, you hear my, you know, my scores are better, my interactions with my family are better, and so forth and so on." Absolutely. All right, so we are going to get started here real quick. I'd like to do um, just a very quick intro. Welcome, everybody. We're live streaming on Facebook. We're here on Zoom. We have quite a few people. Thanks for joining us. Um, today, I'm in, uh, happy to have my guest with me for the second time on my series. He's somebody I met a little over four years ago in New York City at the Mar Maria Shriver luncheon. Yeah. And I was so enlightened by that your presentation that day. And of course, you gave me a copy of your first book. Thank you. Um, I have all your books. That I wanted to talk with you again because you continue to do this wonderful uh, work in the in the area of let's say Alzheimer's and you know other areas as well, of course. But of course, I'm talking about your work in the field more specifically of Alzheimer's. Yeah. My guest newest book is uh, called "The First Survivors of Alzheimer's: How Patients Recovered Life and Hope in Their Own Words." There are first, I believe, seven. Uh, if I'm right. correct, first-person stories of patients who recovered from Alzheimer's disease. And these stories also tell how they went about recovering. It's also been said, uh, I love this because it's true, everybody knows a cancer survivor. I have many in my family. But who has met an Alzheimer's survivor? Most of us, we don't even hear about this until right. now. So it's my pleasure to bring on again, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Doctor, thanks so much for being here. And congratulations yeah, thanks, on the new book. It's a game changer. I bought a whole bunch of copies. I gave them to everybody, and I don't even have any here right now with me because I gave them all away. <laughs> but we have to spread the word. So I'm curious to know um, if you can tell us a little bit about, actually, as a former jazz musician, I like to improvise, but I do have some specific questions. Um, what's going on now? You mentioned a new trial, a recent yes. trial. Yes. Would you like to share about this with us? Yeah, great point. And, you know, as you know, well, we've had so much pushback. People just, you know, don't believe this. Uh, they, they don't believe that people can get better. And we, yet we see it all the time. Uh, and we spent 30 years in the laboratory looking at what are the molecular drivers of the neurodegenerative process. So we've kind of had to take this one step at a time. So back in 2011, we actually, uh, we actually tried to do the first trial that uses this sort of network uh, medicine sort of approach. And we were turned down. We were turned down again in 2018. Although, so you know, first steps, we published some anecdotes to show, yes, when you do this sort of thing, you look at what are all the different pieces that actually cause the decline. And then you address those, then you see people get better. And so uh, we published those in 2014, 16, and 18. 2018, we were turned down again in the trial. And then 2019, actually, we got the go-ahead um, from the IRB to go ahead and do this. And first, initially, a, a proof-of-concept trial. So that's the one we've completed, and it's now published. So it's, it's, it's posted on MedArchive. We're in the midst of, of having it published. But um, if you go on MedArchive today, um, mm -hmm. M-E-D-R-X-I-V, 
uh, you'll see this work. Um, 84% of the people actually got better. Now, when they talk about success in Alzheimer's, they're talking generally about you declined more slowly. We're talking about, no, you actually improved your scores, which you don't see uh, with the various drugs that have been trialed. So that was the first trial, as you mentioned. And then that was posted in May. We're in the midst of the publication now. Uh, the next is to expand this now to a larger, go from proof of concept trial to randomized controlled trial. And again, we've had all sorts of pushback. You know, why didn't you do thousands of patients with a randomized controlled trial? These drug trials are costing, you know, 50 to $100 million per trial. We're showing step-by-step step that this is the way to do it. We get far, far better results. These are results that haven't been seen with any sort of approach before. And, you know, just, Carl, think, step back for one moment. Imagine that you just bought yourself a driverless car. That's something a lot of people will have in the future or will have access to. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that you took it back and you said, look, it's, it's hitting people inappropriately. It doesn't stop when it's supposed to. It doesn't go the way it's supposed to. It doesn't take me where I want to go. And they said to you, well, look, we're going we're gonna to fill it up with gas and we'll see if that fixes it. And you say, well, wait, this is a complicated vehicle. You can't just fill it up. Yeah, well, we'll fill it up with oil then. We'll fill it up. And they keep looking at single things. That's been the history in Alzheimer's. Mm. everyone's looking for one small molecule that fixes what is a very complex chronic illness. Your mm. brain is complicated. And the idea that you're going to take one little molecule and you're going to fix everything, it really makes no scientific sense. And so what we did in a laboratory is look at what are all the things that actually bring in the signals to your brain cells to say, things are not good, you're going to downsize. And by the way, there's a direct analogy to what happened to the world with COVID-19. We were all told to shelter in place, it's a social distance and pull back. People didn't go to work as much. People were doing more Zooms. And mm. what happened? We went into a recession. And yeah. so it's going to take more than one little thing to, to fix that. And so you have to look at what's driving. So what we do with the patients then is we can do this for prevention, or for reversal, and of course, the earlier, the better. And we encourage people, please don't wait. But you've got to look at various pathogens. You've got to look at various toxin mediators. You've got to look at energetics, critical. If you don't have enough oxygenation, enough blood flow, sleep apnea, common problem. Change in oral microbiome, common problem. Leaky gut, common problem. Insulin resistance, common problem. Why would you think that you would address all of those things with one tiny molecule? It, it's, it's a joke. And so that's the way that this disease works. And that's the way that this disease is best treated. Yeah, interesting, really interesting. Um, two questions. Number one, I've heard about this thing called leaky brain syndrome. Is that a thing? Uh, or so is it, there something that would uh, emulate or you can describe that might fit that? Yeah, it's absolutely a thing. Um, so we know that and it's easier to measure leaky gut. You can, so what happens is you have these tight junctions. You, are, you can leak as you get damage to your gut from eating the wrong things, from having specific uh, food sensitivities, uh, from you know, lots of different causes, having various parasites, et cetera, you can actually leak contents of your gut into your bloodstream. And the reason that's a problem is 
they're not meant to communicate that way. You're no. supposed to have single amino acids, so or sometimes dipeptides, but the idea is you break down your food and then it enters the bloodstream. If food fragments enter the bloodstream or fragments of bacteria, which are common, mm -hmm. then what happens is your body sees those as foreign. It says, hey, wait a minute, I've been in, I'm being invaded by something that is not me. And so then you start getting uh, inflammation. And of course, the inflammation contributes to, oh, sorry about that. The inflammation contributes to uh, the inflammation contributes both to cognitive decline. It contributes to uh, to uh, arthritis, things like that, um, cardiovascular disease. So many of these things, and of course, it contributes to aging. And so, um, inflammation contributes to these various things. And, uh, and, and this is a problem. And of course, it contributes to poor outcomes from COVID-19. So uh, we want yeah. to keep our inflammation uh, down. Now, as you pointed out, this idea that there's leakiness into your bloodstream from your gut can be mirrored by leakiness from your blood into your brain. And that's via the so-called blood-brain barrier, which yeah, excludes okay. most things normally, but has been shown very, very nicely by Dr. Slokovich from, uh, from the University of Southern California. Over the years, he's shown quite nicely that very early in the process, you begin to have compromise in your brain arteries. And so you actually, your arterioles, and so you actually get leakage um, into the brain. And of course, what happens there? Your brain now becomes inflamed. And yeah. that is in fact a part of what drives cognitive decline. Now, the difference is just that it's not as easy to measure the changes in the brain as it is to measure the changes from the gut. And so that's taking more time. But yes, it's absolutely something that we should okay. be concerned about. And when we're doing the right things, it's something that should not be so much of a problem. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that totally makes sense too. So one of the things when I first met you in New York City and you were presenting, uh, I, you know, I've done a lot of work with people with Parkinson's. That was my original, let's say, neurological population I work with. Now it's it's just expanded a lot. But what was very interesting to me is when you were saying how that Parkinson's and Alzheimer's may live in the gut for, let's say, 10 to 20 years before it enters the brain. And it could be years before we actually exhibit any type of a symptom at all, maybe loss of sense of smell or in Parkinson's, maybe not a motor symptom for a while. So we're talking about a process here that's likely, I mean, everything's generally, I'm speaking in general terms because everyone's different for the APOP4 genes and this and that and how many copies you have. But it seems yeah. like in, in most cases, this would take a while, like this leaky gut over a long, hopefully, well, hopefully you never have it, but could take right. many, many, many years to cause the cognitive decline. However, is it is it inevitable that something is going to happen if let's say we have very poor diet and we're we have leaky gut because of those sugars and the processed foods and this and that and whatever it is it just we do not metabolizing well and that lining of the stomach is so thin that it yeah. leaks into what what is the prognosis for the general population in those terms if if they keep eating let's say just a really horrible diet because we all know people yeah. who do and i used to a lot and i'm glad i don't anymore 
It's a great point. And the good news is that there's a lot of plasticity there. You can heal these problems, even yeah. though most of us have had them for many, many years. And I think back to, you know, when I grew up um, and all the, you know, you go to birthday parties and eat all this horrible cake and just all these. And of course, when I was training, um, everything was about if you wanted a bunch of medical students to come to your conference, all you did was serve pizza and everyone shows up for pizza. And so the amount of pizza that we all ate over the years and then staying up all night, and, you know, seeing patients. Oh, my gosh, we were doing all the wrong things. But let me take one step back and then we'll talk about Parkinson's and Alzheimer's here. What our research suggested was a model that really hadn't been suggested before. That is that the major neurodegenerative diseases, and I'm talking about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and Lewy body disease and frontotemporal dementia and ALS and PSP and CBD and these various diseases, all have something in common, that they represent a mismatch between the supply of their associated neural subsystem. So of course in Alzheimer's, it's all about neuroplasticity. In Parkinson's, it's really about motor control. In ALS, it's about motor power and so forth and so on. These have different subsystems. You can even look at you know, age-related macular degeneration. You have a, 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 you know, a subsystem that supports your macula. So these things are critical. And so in all of these cases, you have a situation where this subsystem has a certain demand and you've got plenty of supply when you're young. As you're getting older, your supply is going down, but your demand is coming up because now you have inflammation. Now you're trying to detox and get rid of these toxins that you have required, that you have acquired over the years. So this is the problem, that these represent a chronic mismatch between the supply that you're giving that subsystem and the demand that it is required to keep it going. So no surprise, you now downsize it so that you can make it work. Your brain is basically saying, okay, Carl, I can't keep you with uh, 500 trillion synapses, which is about what you have, but I can keep you with 400 trillion synapses, I'm going to start downsizing. You're losing a lot of synapses there. Wow. Uh, and so again, this is very much like what happens with COVID where people pull back, there's less of a system going then. And so with these, as you indicated, yes, the gut plays a huge role and that's been shown again and again and again, the microbiomes in the gut are different in patients with Alzheimer's than they are in patients who do not have Alzheimer's. And of course, there's a real interest in the idea that you have these prions, prions basically are things that can beget more of themselves without, without DNA or RNA, and that these things can be in the brain, can also be uh, in the gut, amyloids have this property of begetting more of themselves. But we would argue that the, this is part of the antimicrobial effect of these. So what's happening is you're not making the amyloid of Alzheimer's or the synuclein of Parkinson's because you're trying to hurt yourself. You're doing this as a protective measure. And as you know, both amyloid in Alzheimer's and the alpha-synuclein that collects in Parkinson's are antimicrobial, as well as, by the way, the tau that collects in Alzheimer's. So these are not to be vilified. These are things that your brain is responding with when it is protecting itself from these various pathogens. And in fact, you know, with alpha-synuclein, there are clear effects 
on specific microbial species. It is mostly, uh, it is mostly an intracellular antimicrobial, uh, although to some extent extracellular as well. So the, I think we're beginning to see these diseases very differently as mismatches where you're now trying to support, you're trying to keep your brain alive. You're not trying to hurt it by making alpha-synuclein an amyloid. Sure, sure. That's Totally makes it very, very interesting. So, you know, uh, just a couple things real quick. And then what I'd like to do is kind of go on this pathway into some stories from the new book, because I'd love to, we, we, we learn now about, let's say the, um, the process or what's the likely process for degeneration, let's say hippocampus or substantia nigra and Parkinson's and probably some other areas too, but overall degeneration. Um, so, uh, but before we go into how to restore, let's say, quality of life, memory, reverse Alzheimer's, I'm curious to know a couple of things. Um, as a person who's dealt with liver uh, numbers less than optimal in my liver, although the past three years have been good, hepatitis yeah. A didn't help and some other things in my life when I was much larger. Uh, I'm reading a book about the liver right now. It's very interesting. And it, it seems like is there any connection at all, just to get right to the point, between liver health, brain health, liver health, oh, Alzheimer's? Because it oh, seems yeah. like there's a huge connection, and I, I just love to hear how that's connected. Yeah, and so this is all, again, this is part of the GI system. And you did ask before about diet. And so, yes, when you, and I wrote a chapter in the very first book, The End of yeah. Alzheimer's, about how to give yourself Alzheimer's. So if you want to give yourself Alzheimer's, um, you can do it. Um, and, uh, you know, why would someone want to do that? But if you want to do that, you can do all the things wrong. And you won't be diagnosed with Alzheimer's on day one, as you indicated. It takes some time. But you will be putting a drag on the system very quickly. And you'll begin to notice brain fog fairly quickly. And this happens all the time. Of course, people got, have gotten brain fog with COVID-19. People get brain fog, you know, stay up all night a couple of nights. You'll have some brain fog. Um, and that's, you know, 20 years down the road, you'll have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. It takes, it takes some time. We know it's very well documented that from the beginning, biochemical changes in the brain to a diagnosis of Alzheimer's takes about 20 years. But during that time, things aren't perfect. Your biochemistry is abnormal. Your inflammatory status is typically abnormal and a whole host of other things. So, and you have often have leaky gut as part of that and the liver, you're right. Um, so I would ask you, what's your ALT, AST and GGT? Those are the big three to know. Okay. And you know you, they should be, you know, your ALT and, and uh, AST should be less than 25, should be down, you know, looking good. And your GGT should be you know, midpoint or lower. Uh, you know, should be looking good. The, otherwise, you are at risk. And there's a nice uh, new book out by uh, Dr. Robert Lustig called Metabolical. And his point that- oh, Beautiful um, you know, book. Beautiful book. And, you know, uh, the, the, uh, is his point is that the non-communicable diseases are really what's taking over the world right now. We have right. to worry less about pneumococcal pneumonia than we did in the last century. But insulin resistance is rampant throughout the world. Huge. And it, so this is, you know, this yeah. is really about, and, you know, unfortunately, our food contributes, uh, even our drugs contribute. So many things contribute to this problem. 
processed food is a huge player. And we just don't realize this is like when people used to smoke cigarettes, you know, in the 1800s and didn't realize that, hey, wait a minute, these things are giving me lung cancer. We're at the same situation now with our food supply where we don't realize that the things we're doing are giving us the diseases that we're going into the hospital for and dying from, which is unfortunate. It is. It's horrible. Um, and like Dr. Barry up here will say that obviously the same thing. That's one of the reasons he follows you and respects you so much in the work you do. Um, I remember you had said another thing was really interesting too, that we can call Alzheimer's basically a type three diabetes. Um, yeah, and I, and I, I mean, is that, am I off base on that? Because if I am, please correct me. That was actually first proposed um, by Professor Brown from uh, Harvard, from uh, Brown University, um, and uh, so the so what she had pointed out, um, uh, what she had pointed out was that I'm sorry, and it was this Brown University doctor doctor uh, uh, I think it's De La Monte is her name, okay. um, who is a pathologist. So she had pointed out that there are a lot of features that make this look like what could be type three diabetes. Um, what our research would suggest is that's part of it, but not the whole thing. So in other words, okay. there are four major areas that all contribute to cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. And one of those relates to type three diabetes. So yes, insulin resistance, very common. And okay. there are about 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance. So very, you could argue it's probably the most common contributor to cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease. But it's really more than just that because there are people who don't have insulin resistance who develop Alzheimer's and there are people who have insulin resistance who don't develop Alzheimer's. So it's not quite that straightforward. But energetics, huge area, and that's blood flow and oxygenation and mitochondrial function and ketosis, the ability to make the ketones that you are that you're burning in your mitochondria. Uh, and then that's, that's one area. And then it is trophic support, and that's nerve growth factor, BDNF, sure. nutrients, yeah. hormones, things like that. Third area is inflammation, as we talked about earlier, that mm-hmm. causes drag on the system. And the fourth one is various toxins. And those are, these are the uh, inorganic toxins, uh, lots now on uh, air pollution and its increase in risk with air pollution for cognitive decline. And then uh, organics, toluene, benzene, glyphosate, formaldehyde, things like that. And then thirdly, uh, biotoxins, things like trichothecenes that are produced by stachybotrys, a mold, um, and other biotoxins. Um, so those are the four big groups. And yes, uh, very common. If you look really interestingly, if you look at sugar, one of the big problems with sugar and cognition is it contributes to all four of those areas. So it can give you inflammation. So it can glycate, yeah. non-enzymatically glycate various proteins. Of course, we measure that as hemoglobin A1C, but there are hundreds of proteins that are getting glycated. It changes their shape, their function, causes them to be inflammatory. There are other inflammatory molecules, glyoxals, et cetera. There are toxins and things, again, like glyoxals, um, puts you know, damage on your liver, which now doesn't detoxify as well. So liver plays a huge role here. It also... Okay changes your trophic support and changes your energetics. So unfortunately, it contributes to the big four when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. Well, thank you for that. And also thank you for the explanation about type three diabetes, because that's something I've, I've heard over and over. And I yeah. wanted to hear from you the real, the real deal. 
Um, okay, so I, I do have some questions for you here real quick. And by the way, anybody watching, if you have any questions on Zoom, just type them in the chat box. If you're on Facebook, type them in the comments and I'll be monitoring both. Um, let's take a look at my questions. All right, so this book has some very powerful stories from seven survivors. Um, if there's any other, if there are any stories you'd like to uh, talk about, you're welcome to this is a platform for you to share whatever you want. And between the release of the book and now, I'm sure there's more information that you have for us, but the specific questions I have for you, I'm just going to lump them all into one question. When it comes to diet, when it comes to supplements, medications, exercise, and anything else you want to bring into this, uh, my last word on here is just for the overall healing process, we know if we read the the first book, the second book too, the bread, um, I'm sorry, the Bredesen Protocol. That's your the protocol. It's the um, end of yeah, the Alzheimer's yeah. Protocol. Thank you. It's the name of yeah. the second book, folks. You should all get it. Um, how are we looking at this? How do the survivors use uh, implement these things into their lives? Because we know there's large factors in each of these that that especially exercise and dietary, but share with us. Uh, I'd love to yeah. hear um, anything you want to say about it. Yeah, well, I think the most important thing to recognize is um, the, that it's complicated. Your brain is complicated. This is mm -hmm. why taking a single drug doesn't fix everything. And so most of them took it kind of in steps, just started with some simple things and then keep tweaking and tweaking. The things that have really been associated, and we've seen this now with thousands of people who've gone through this protocol, the things that are associated with great success are number one, work with a trained practitioner. Um, and now if you're on there for just for prevention, you can just get it with a health coach. You don't need to go to a, to a physician necessarily. But if you already have some cognitive decline, first of all, please don't wait. And second of all, because you know that's, that's been the big problem, people wait and wait and wait, and they're told, oh, probably not Alzheimer's, wait. And then they're finally told, well, it is Alzheimer's, there's nothing we can do. Everything, as you know, everything in this field has been backward because people haven't understood what the disease actually is. Mm -hmm. So they keep saying, well, wait, and then when it gets severe, we'll put you on a drug trial. Over 400 drug trials now that have failed. It's, it's uh, really horrendous. It's because th there's not the understanding about what this is. So please, if you're going to get on prevention, great, pretty simple, get some simple blood tests. We call this pre-code for prevention of cognitive decline, some simple blood tests, uh, and an online cognitive assessment that takes about 30 minutes. It's easy. And then get on appropriate prevention. Work with a health coach because they can help optimize things for you. Sure. On the other hand, if you already have symptoms, um, the program is called Recode for Reversal of Cognitive Decline. And please see a trained physician. We've trained over 2,000 physicians uh, all over. You can look at mycognoscopy.com uh, or you can look at drbredesen.com and please get evaluated because you do need to know these things. This has been the problem that when you go to a memory center, they check just a couple of things and they don't check the things that are actually driving the decline. So what these people did is they typically worked with someone that could help. Sometimes it was a spouse, sometimes it was a health coach. Uh, they, they would go to an appropriate physician, although you saw in Julie's story, 
That's the final of the seven stories. She waited months to see an expert neurologist in Alzheimer's. And she said, look, I, I'm, I, I've got the highest genetic risk. I'm ABLE 4-4. And that's about 7 million Americans who have that, most of whom unfortunately don't know it. Could you at least help me to stay where I am? And he looked at her and said, good luck with that. So, you know, just a horrible thing to hear. Um, and she's done great. And she went from 35th percentile on her cognitive testing to 98th percentile. She's mm -hmm. done absolutely great. Um, and by the way, after several years, she began to have a minimal slip. And we looked at, okay, what's something is being missed. There is something driving this. Let's find out what it is. In her case, it turned out to be something called Babesia which is a chronic infection that you get from a tick bite. She had had it for more than 10 years because oh, wow. she'd been treated for Lyme, but they didn't get the Babesia, which is a co-infection that comes along very frequently with okay. Lyme disease. So she's done very, very well. Now, Julie G., um, if I'm correct, she's she does a lot of work with you, doesn't she? Yes, yeah. So she yeah. actually uh, she wrote a substantial piece on the second book, yeah, uh, and she works with. She's the one who started ApoE4.info, and so her own yes. personal story um, is really remarkable. Uh, so, so most people did, and she, by the way, did the same thing. Started on a few things, started then tweaking, tweaking, and continuing. And as I said, when we found that okay, something's missing, we had to go back. And by the way, I just talked to Sally a couple of days ago. She's oh, one of the people who who wrote her story. I mean, yeah. she had a positive PET scan, amyloid in her brain. ApoE4 positive. She'd been on a drug trial and actually that each time she would take the drug in the drug trial, it would actually make her worse instead of better. Mm -hmm. We've heard this from a number of people. And so she then quit the drug trial. She got on the protocol. She went, her, her MOCA score was 24 initially, which means she had significant MCI, pre-Alzheimer's. Um, but her PET scan was already showing she had lots of amyloid. She was on her way to Alzheimer's. And she's come back to a perfect 30 uh, with her scores. And she scores 30, 29, which is, which is oh, beautiful. excellent at each time. She's doing very, very well. Uh, you know, her husband can tell, her granddaughters can tell, her scores yeah. show it. Um, and she's done absolutely great. But we're, again, with her, we're looking at continuing to tweak things to look to see uh, are there things that have been missed? You have to remember, this is a dynamic process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, your brain is deciding between synaptoblastic, making synapses and maintaining them, and synaptoclastic, pulling back, downsizing. And so you want to keep it in that positive mode. Sure, yeah. Um, if you don't mind, what is it? AP, APOE4 and me? Sure. Oh, no, wait. Um, uh, oh, Julie, oh, no. Julie G's website. Yeah, hers is apoe4.info. Oh, dot info. Okay. Dot info. Yeah. So check out her wonderful site. There are over 3,000 people from around the world who are APOE4 positive who are all sharing their information. And almost all of them are on some version of the protocol we described and that, that is talked about and that she talks about uh, in her chapter in The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's... Um... I, like I said, I think I bought about 20 copies of your book and I just gave them out because people need to have this information, in my yeah. opinion. And um, the stories are powerful. And that's one of the things I really like about this most recent book is it's coming, it's in their own words, as you say, in, in the liner notes it's, or in the, uh, in the description. And it, there's 
really nothing more powerful than to hear it from the source who went through the recovery, let's say, or the um, recovering from Alzheimer's. I mean, yeah. it doesn't get much better than that. Absolutely. And when I was getting emails from these people or phone calls and talking to them over the years, I thought, wow, I mean, this is so powerful. And then to see, well, you know, we have to prove this. Okay, you're going to retake tests and show that, yes, you clearly improved. Um, by the way, in our trial, MRIs improved. Uh, it's not just the cognition that improved. Their MRIs actually improved. In fact, their gray matter volumes increased. Uh, so it was, you know, very exciting to see that. And so to have people, I asked then these seven people, would you mind, you know, writing your stories down? Or write what happened to you because I wanted to have it so that people could read and say, hey, I can do that. You know, I, I shouldn't wait. This is not just something that appeared in the scientific literature or something that I shouldn't believe. This is something that, you know, people that I can talk to who are actually telling me, these are the things that we did for our families. So we urge people, please, especially if there's someone in your family who's had cognitive decline, please get on active prevention if you are 45 years of age or older. That's so important. It is. Um, do you have maybe another five or 10 minutes? I don't want to keep yeah, you sure. too long. Okay. Sure. No problem. So they just brought up another thought, for example, and I didn't plan on asking you this, but I, I will ask this. I've traveled uh, internationally a lot all over the world teaching in um, some research projects, but mostly teaching. There are certain countries I notice where, uh, let's say the average age of diagnosis of Parkinson's, for example, that's the area I know better as far as statistics, Yeah, where it's much younger than here. I mean, according to Dr. Shumei Wong at Hershey Penn State, she says as of four years ago when I interviewed here, her, um, she was my son's mentor in his PhD program, um, wonderful lady, wonderful neurologist, 62 years old, average age of diagnosis. Now, it doesn't mean that that's when they got Parkinson's. It could have been two, three, four, five years, six months, or whatever to get yeah. the diagnosis. And then we also have cases of misdiagnosis. Um, people I know personally who were diagnosed with Parkinson's who doesn't, don't have it. However, we go to Mexico, we go to Uganda, we go to Poland, and we see that uh, I know so many people. In fact, one person is on right now, uh, a dear friend. I hope you don't mind me mentioning you, Laura, lives with Parkinson's uh, in her 40s. I know people in Mexico with 26, 27, 28, 29 years old, 30, mid-30s, Uganda, teenagers. Is there any data that you know relative to uh, average age diagnosis or, or living conditions or anything um, around the world where it varies? Um, in the Alzheimer's arena, let's say. Are you seeing anything different like I am in the Parkinson's world? Yeah, well, let's take a, you know, let's again go back because this is what we studied for, for 30 years in the laboratory. You know, how do these diseases actually work? What are the critical determinants? All these things sound like mysteries until you know how the system works. So let's talk about the system in Parkinson's. So of course you have a subsystem of your brain that's associated with motor control. And that's really what you're losing when you have, as you know, when you have Parkinson's, um, you are walking more slowly. You can't make that control. You're speaking differently. Mm -hmm. You fall down more easily. This is all about motor control and it takes energy. So the Achilles heel of that subsystem is mitochondrial complex one. As you know, you can give yourself Parkinson's in about one hour 
by taking MPTP, as we know. Dr. Langston showed mm. the rest of the world that back in 1983. Uh, brilliant insight and very, wow. very important discovery from Dr. Langston. And so it became clear that anything that you do to reduce your mitochondrial function will increase, again, you're looking at a balance, right? Mm -hmm. And so it does have to do with your glutathione levels. Are you detoxing the toxins you're exposed to? Of course, genetics are in there. As has been shown, it's important that you're able to deal with pathogens. And isn't it amazing that one of the things that's critical genetically for, Par for Parkinson's has to do with your ability to, de to, to deal with these pathogens by fusing lysosomes, essentially to get enzymes that will dismantle the pathogens. If you don't do that well, you're at increased risk. So again, you start with a system, it's got plenty of dopamine, you're able to make this work. And then over the years, anything you do to put drag on that, and it's toxins you're exposed to, and we know things like paraquat and rotenone um, and numerous others, are so critical. There's a wonderful book that came out last year, um, which is called A Prescription for Ending Parkinson's. And they talked about people who didn't realize that they were actually living in homes with Parkinsonian toxins, mm -hmm. and they would end up getting Parkinson's. So you need to know, and again, this is the new medicine, this old idea that we wait until things are late, and then we give you some cinnamon. That has got to go. We have got to look at people earlier and be able to say, okay, you're more at risk. We know all these things that are critical. We can look at this. And as you know, if you actually then say, okay, I'm at risk, I better actually look at the dopamine uptake by my substantia nigra. You can do that by fluorodopa uptake by PET scan. And as you know, it goes down about five years before the motor symptoms. So right. we have the ability. And then, as you know, there's a triad. Anyone who has the triad, losing your smell, mm -hmm. right? yeah. REM behavioral disturbance, flinging your arms when you're dreaming, and then constipation. That is a oh, critical yeah. triad. And I would recommend anyone who even loses their sense of smell. And of course, this is common with COVID. Um, but if you've lost your sense of smell or if you've had COVID, you lost it and you didn't get it back. Uh, and then please get evaluated, find out. Let's find out what your glutathione level is. Let's find out how your gut is doing. Because again, this system all works together and we can do much better at early prevention and early prevention of going on to the decline. If you find out that your you know, dopamine is already on the low side, there's a lot you can do to make it so that you aren't going to slide into now having these effects on your motor system. So again, we have to change the entire way the medical community and the healthcare community uh, deals with these neurodegenerative diseases mm -hmm. because the way we've been doing it, wait for the symptoms to come on, which is a late stage of the illness, and then hit it with a single drug or even two drugs, it really isn't the optimal way to deal with neurodegenerative diseases. And we need to make it so that future generations do not have to worry about these illnesses. Yeah, as Dr. Barry and his dad would say uh, to their patients, I want to see you when you're not broken. Yeah. Right? Don't don't get broke and then have me have to fix you with a pill. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't want to keep you too long. Just a couple more thoughts. Um, 
when it comes to, um, I'm just curious to know if there's any uh, anything additional you'd want to add in the area of, let's say, exercise, particularly, I remember what Maria Schreier was saying in, in some study that came out four or five years ago, I think maybe funded by her foundation, uh, approximately six months of people with early stage Alzheimer's who did cardio for 30 minutes or something like that, five days a week, approximately. I could have all my stats wrong, but it was along those lines that six months later, um, I don't know if they did a dietary change or anything else, right, right. but it seems like the activity of getting the blood and the oxygen to the brain, creating brain-derived neurotrophic factor, the BDNF, and and really, um, it, it seems like the, the hippocampus is one of the areas, Is it, correct me please if I'm wrong, that may be able to give birth to new brain cells. Is this true? Yeah, so, yeah, so, so neural stem cells populate that region of the brain. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and so, so yeah, study absolutely helpful. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, so exercise wise, I know cardio is a great way, you know, it doesn't have to be super intense, but just intense enough. So you're working and your heart rate is elevated. I don't, uh, I've heard different opinions on this. If you have one, I'm happy to hear about it. Yeah. 25, 30 minutes get the heart rate elevated long enough to create PDNF, do it frequently, go five days a week if you can. Um, we have ways here that we work with people, even if they're seated, you know, we can take a, a towel and we can flap it for a minute and then take a, a minute off and then flap something ridiculous, but you don't have to walk to raise the heart rate. But it seems like that does wonders for cognition, for retention of information for learning. I know I focus better if I do exercise prior to an interview, which I only did 10 minutes today, but I, yeah. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, it's, it's so, huge, no question about it. Any comments and, on exercise in relation to recovering from Alzheimer's? No question. And, and again, we, we tend to want to isolate these things and say, well, does exercise cure Alzheimer's? No, not by itself. But there are other things, again, you're, you're, you're changing the function of a sub-network in the brain that in this case has to do with neuroplasticity. And so you have to kind of hit these various things. So I always think of it in terms of what's the biochemistry that needs to change. So as you, you mentioned, one of the things, BDNF, your, your brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is low in Alzheimer's, by the way, needs to go higher and that helps exercise. So there are three general types of exercises you kind of alluded to. So one is the aerobics, as you mentioned, weight weight training mm -hmm. and then the third one of course is coordination uh, which is particularly important of course in parkinson's disease yeah and so you want to hit all three of those things and they do different things biochemically for your brain so for example building muscle tends to be quite good for insulin sensitivity and so that's an important thing to do. And, and these katsu bands that so many people are using, in fact, was, we were used by some of the Olympic athletes. Um, these things are just restriction bands in general um, have been quite good for helping people to build muscle more easily and to get a better workout more easily. Second thing, the aerobics you mentioned. And one of the things I really like is EWOT, um, which is exercise with oxygen therapy. And you can go to various places that have these bikes you pedal and you have you know, exercise with oxygen therapy at that time. People buy them for their homes sometimes. Uh, so there are lots of good ways to get that. And it does give you improved oxygenation and improved blood flow. And then interestingly, 
When you remove it, in fact, there's, and this is a, a very interesting study out of Israel that was using hyperbaric. If you now cycle, which you do, for example, with EWOT as well, you get the best of both worlds. You get the oxygenation, and then you get that relative change where you're now saying, oh, suddenly the oxygen is not quite what it was. Your system then responds uh, by making more on the trophic side. So, so good, you know, help both sides there. And then, of course, the third piece being um, the, the uh, coordination. There are all sorts of great things. And I know lots of people have picked up things like pickleball and ping pong and all sorts of uh, you know, all sorts of activities that are good for coordination and your speed of processing as well. So yeah. in fact, exercise, we think of it's not just one thing. It actually has multiple benefits for cognition and multiple benefits for the subsystem that's associated uh, with Parkinson's disease as well. You're always so um, just enlightening to me. You know, you always have so much to say. I really... I love it. You know, this whole idea of subsystems, I really haven't thought of it like this before until today. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it here and there, and it didn't stick with me. Today, though, this is different. And Nancy, if you're still on, we got to talk with the doctor about some oxygen down here. Okay, we have a ping pong table here. We have all kinds of stuff. And, you know, the coordination thing has been really good if we do carefully. You know, we want to challenge people and not hurt them right. or have them fall, but do some kind of movement to whatever their ability yeah. is while they're doing a cognitive task of some torp. There's so many different types of cognition and memory and yeah. just exercising two or three. I, I call it stacking. Let's yeah. move first. Let's add on a cognitive task or a memory, ta memory task. And maybe we're doing a hand-eye thing at the same time. We just want them to move better and reduce fall risk, think better. So I'm Thank you for mentioning the coordination too, because that's that's a big Very deal. Cool. Yes, big deal. Cool. So, if we did a quick recap here, one of the things I'm also very glad you shared is if anybody out there, you know, anyone out there, you feel is experiencing any type of you're noticing maybe processing is different. They're not responding the way they used to, even in general conversation, uh, forgetfulness. It seems like sooner is always better to get checked out. And I think that the only other question I have on my list, and we don't have any questions from people here. So I just want to ask one more thing about the APOE4 gene. How many copies is the maximum that you've ever found? What's possible or what is the most you've ever found in a person or known of? Yeah, so, so what happens is you get one from your mother and one from your father. So you can either have, so then you can get APOE 2, 3, or 4. So for example, I checked myself. I'm a 3-3, three, three, which is kind of the vanilla most common. I got a 3 from my mother, a 3 from my father. So oh, okay. as far it. as APOE 4, you can have 0, because you might be a 2-3 three or a 3-3. Three, three. You can have 1. Now, there are 75 million Americans who have one copy of APOE 4. Okay. And then there are 7 million who have two copies. So if you look at it, people who have 0 copies, that's 3 quarters of the population, having about a 9% risk of developing Alzheimer's during their lifetime. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. Sure. If you have a single copy, that's, as I say, 75 million Americans, you have about a 30% chance during your lifetime of developing Alzheimer's, approximately. If you have two copies, it's well over 50%. Most likely you will develop Alzheimer's. So 
we should make it so that none of these people get Alzheimer's. There is appropriate prevention. And as I mentioned, earliest reversal. And so please don't wait. I think people always say, well, look, you know, it's probably not Alzheimer's. Well, if it's not, that's great. So, okay, you, you, but you've yeah. still got something that's bothering you. So please get on it. Let's fix that thing that's bothering you and let's prevent you. We really could, if everybody did the right thing on prevention or earliest reversal, we could make Alzheimer's a rare disease, which is just what it should be. Yeah. It, so is there, um, it just prompted another question. I promise I won't take you, keep you much longer, but is if you take, let's say, uh, um, uh, just a really crummy diet, you know, a lot of sugar, maybe a lot of alcohol, a lot of processed foods, a lot of fructose and, you know, fake foods, basically stuff you put in your body that is manufactured or whatever. Um, and you have APOE, two copies, you have right. APOE for times two, does that elevate, significantly elevate or what? Yes, it will you... increase the risk further. Yeah. So it's okay. a combination of your genetics and yeah. your exposure. All right. So yeah, again, there are, as sense. I wrote in my first book, there are lots of things that can be contributing to increased risk. And you can, you know, most, <laughs> one of the reasons I wrote that was because most of us are doing most of these already. We're yeah. eating the wrong foods. We're getting a lot of stress. We're not getting the right sleep. We're not yeah. checking our oxygenation. We're not checking our oral microbiome. We're doing all these things that are actually pushing us. As one brilliant doctor uh, who had had early Alzheimer's and single copy APOE4 said to me, uh, you know, he said, you know, I I'm giving myself Alzheimer's as, as he started to realize all these things that are that are contributing. And yes, you can address all of those things. So absolutely doing the wrong things with diet does increase your risk. The good news is you have a runway to, to switch to the right things. Yeah. And you really have more plasticity than you realize. People can improve their blood pressures, can improve their metabolic status, can improve their insulin resistance, can improve their detoxification, can improve their liver status. All of these things uh, can improve. <clears throat> and I should mention, you know, you mentioned earlier the liver. Uh, very interesting study that showed that when people develop ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, about 70% of those people have a fatty liver. So that's mm -hmm. already showing that there's some significant damage. It's not clear yet why that is, but that's a striking association. I tell you, none of these are diagnoses that any of us want to receive or, right. you know, have put our loved ones through or have our loved ones get it. Um, so the other, the other thing I just thought of here too, is it would seem that if we switch tracks, like it was, 12 years ago, I switched tracks when I'm, well, 13, I'm 61, just about. So 48 years old, uh, yeah, I was weighing in around 300 pounds. I'm 6'2", that's way too big. I shouldn't be weighing that much. Former musician, switched to this business now. But um, after losing a lot of weight, of course, that was good. I didn't, I haven't eaten perfectly. You know, I don't ever probably eat perfectly, but it's a lot better than it used to be. The idea, though, is that I feel better. My cognition's better. My movement's better. Everything feels better. My memory's better. And yeah. it seems like, well, hopefully, uh, be, with Alzheimer's in my family, the history, and I need to get maybe 23 of me or something will tell me my APOE4, what I yeah, have. Yeah, you, you can do it as mycognoscopy.com. Oh, mycognoscopy. We want to go to, uh, by the way, thank you for saying that, because I didn't know that was there. 
mycognoscopy.com. And I love you coining the cognoscopy word. I think it's beautiful. We could potentially then maybe avoid onset or at least delay it at least by switching tracks before we even know, have a symptom, hopefully. Maybe we have Alzheimer's in our gut and we've had it for five years, but if we change pathways, boom, we might never know we had it. Uh, Dr. Bredesen, any any final uh, words words of wisdom, anything you want to tell people other than I'm going to say you need to buy all of his books, the latest one being The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Dr. Well, Bredesen. Know, I think we all have been around when there have been sudden changes in uh, you know, in technology uh, or in practice. So, you know, when Facebook first appeared, when Twitter first appeared, um, I was a little kid when when uh, polio, uh, when polio vaccinations first appeared. Um, before that, my mother, when I was like, you know, two, three, my mother would tell me, oh my gosh, you know, polio is really a horrible disease. We want to make sure people get it. They, people didn't know why people were getting it at the time. Uh, and so um, we saw a huge change um, when the Salk and then Sabin uh, vaccines came out. So we're in a point, we're at a point in history now where we're going to undergo this fundamental change where people will understand that you don't have to get Alzheimer's is optional. You don't have to get this. Um, yeah. Still, the medical establishment is pushing back. They're still looking for that drug. Uh, and, you know, maybe someday there will be a drug that is a complete cure for everybody with Alzheimer's. Uh, but it, it hasn't happened with decades of and billions and billions and billions of dollars thrown yeah. at it. One drug, aducanumab, $28 billion to develop these, and it doesn't help. So um, this is a real problem. So I, what I would say to everyone is please be proactive and let's reduce the global burden of dementia. We have the ability today to make Alzheimer's optional if people will get in early and get on prevention or the earliest reversal. Great advice, as always. Um, Dr. Bredesen, thank you very, very much. Yeah, great again, talking to you, Carl, as always. Always great to see you. Great to talk with you again. Um, can't wait for your next book. You're writing yeah. one, aren't you? You got to have one in the works. I'm working on another one, yeah. Right, so, you know, like let's, uh, here's to great progress in 2022 for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Bredesen. Thank you, everybody, for watching on Facebook and on Zoom. Uh, Dr. Bredesen and everybody, um, this will be up, if you're okay with this, Dr. Bredesen, on YouTube later. Sure. I'll post, I'll tag you, feel free to share, and um, we'll get the world hearing this great information. Thanks again, my friend. Thanks very much. Take care, yeah, Carl. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That was awesome. I love the guy. He's such a good guy.